Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. Sabrina and I have an all-star lineup today. We're going to be talking about the LGBTQ, and that is as many letters I can string together in a row. I know there's many, many more. Um, And everything that's going on with the Supreme Court ruling and everything with all these different protests and talking about marginalized groups, we got a lot of ground to cover, and I have an all-star lineup. Sean Hawley, who is a celebrity defense lawyer, but as she likes to say, a public defender at heart. We have J.D. Fuller, a licensed clinical social worker and, with a capital A, activist, and Howard Bragman, my beloved, my, my, Sabrina and I, I think you're like our, our gay husband. <laughs> you, we, no, you, I'm a gold star. Yeah, well, I would have required <laughs> me to do things that I've never done. <laughs> <laughs> who's also publicist and media director and t- takes care of people when they get into bad situations, which is how you and Sean know each other. That's right. Crisis PR. Um, let's just jump right in. I want to start with you, Sean. First of all, I don't think people understand what it takes to get a case to the Supreme Court. Where did this particular case start? I don't think people realize it takes years. Well, not only does it take years, but I was actually speaking about this just this morning. I'd have to look and see what tiny percentage of cases ever make it there. Right. I mean, it to be of such monumental constitutional significance to ever make it to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's got to go through a number of lower courts, federal courts, and it has to be an issue, as I said, of monumental import. And um, this obviously is a case of monumental import. Um, very happy about the ruling. It's a lot like the marriage equality. Also, there were a lot of split on this and the marriage equality, a lot of people in the LGBTQI community didn't want it to go to the Supreme Court because they did not believe they would win. Now in this one, the gay community was very, very surprised. Not only that they won, but they won in what would be a lopsided victory. And I think it was the more conservative elements that pushed this case to the Supreme Court as opposed to the gay community. How, how important is this ruling? And for people who don't know what the ruling is, I'm going to sort of generalize. It's basically an anti-discrimination ruling saying you cannot be fired for anything having to do with sex, gender, gender identity, anything. And it's very similar. And what they keep saying, it's actually very similar to the very famous Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, case when she, before she was a Supreme Court justice where it's on the basis of sex. That, that's right. I mean, it, it, it really dovetails onto the Civil Rights Act um, and it's from, I believe, 1964. And it sounds like, based on what I'm reading, that somebody just kind of slipped sex in there almost as an afterthought. And that is exactly the, the, the word and the idea upon which this court based its ruling. What's surprising to me, honestly, is that it was okay 
to di discriminate uh, against people by virtue of them being gay or lesbian or queer or whatever it is that you could discriminate against people on the basis of their sexual identity. You know, I guess I should have known that as a lawyer, but it, it surprised me that it took this long to get that sort of right. JD, were you surprised? You know, I think surprise is um, a big word. I was happy about it, but I also, I, I'm a little bit of a, um, what is it? I kind of look at it from the other side, which is, it seems like it was a coincidence that it happened right now for me. Because, and, and, because it's and, an election year? Is that is that your coincidence? I can't Black Lives it. Matters, which one? I'm getting to it. I absolutely believe that. Um, I think there is there is civil unrest right now, and I think the fear of uh, the LGBTQIA plus community aligning with the Black Lives Matter movement, along with it being an election year, election year, um, definitely contributed to the timing of this ruling. But I have a, again a legal question, only because I'm fascinated by all of this. Wasn't this case argued last year and the, it takes almost six months to get a ruling? I don't know the answer to that, but that would not surprise me. Yeah. Right. Me. So, you know, I, but now you've been discussing something called intersectionality. Would you explain that, please? Because let's be honest, I had to Google it. And by, <laughs> and by the way, you have no idea how many messed up spellings. First, I thought it was intersexuality. I'm like, oh God, not another group that I have to try and figure out what it means. It's like, it was actually intersectionality. Intersectionality. So I'll start off by saying I am, I have four strikes against me. I'm African-American. I am masculine of center. I am um, a lesbian. And I lean towards identifying with all ways in which I identify myself. So the intersection is all of my beings together. I, um, it is hard for me to think just about lesbian rights, gay rights, without first filtering it through my African-American lens and how it impacts me first. Because you can guess that I'm gay, you probably assume you'd be right, but you see that I'm African-American and that is generally what people respond to first. So ultimately, that's the lens that I end up filtering my experiences through. So JD, when you say intersectionality, one of the things that I read was, in your opinion, the Supreme Court LGBTQ ruling only distracts from what the real issue at hand is, which is the Black Lives Matter movement. So I don't know if I would say, um, I mean, I, I, I waffle a little bit with the word distracts, but I definitely think it was timely because I believe that fear is the deciding factor of many things in our lives, um, politically, emotionally. And so I think the fear of the LGBTQ plus community aligning strongly with the African-American community and really creating um, a position of power uh, is frightening. It's frightening to a lot of people. And so I think, how do you make that not so frightening? You make sure you pass something at, right in the middle of a civil unrest so that part of the community is celebrated. This is wonderful, but I can't leave, keep my eyes off the prize, which is that people can't afford to live and that African-American community is impacted um, so much by everything that is wrong in our society. And we don't look at it. We're dying faster with coronavirus than other people. Um, we're losing jobs and more, un more unemployment. 
can't afford to live. There's too many things going on to distract me by a ruling that only satisfies half of who I am, a part of who I am. Well, you know, that, that's really interesting to hear for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, the Pride Parade was last Sunday in West Hollywood. And um, I go every year, I have forever. And this year, it seemed that there was going to be um, a, a merged uh, Pride and BLM parade, which somehow got derailed. I mean, it seems like kind of in a grassroots way, it came back together. But initially, it had been promoted as that. And then it kind of fell off. And I, and I was happy when it was together, because speaking of intersectionality, and I think this is a part of it, um, after the first women's march, there were a lot of women there of all colors. And by the second women's march, there were far fewer black women, because of yes. that, black women felt that. White women don't show up for us. They exactly. don't show up for black issues at all. And so why are we here showing up for you when you don't show up for us? Exactly how and I feel. It's the first time that I'm seeing with the, the murder of George Floyd, everybody kind of showing up. There is an intersectionality there in that everybody seems to be a part of this. Um, and so in that sense, I was happy to hear that BLM and the gay community would all be together for this march in West Hollywood. And whether or not that ultimately happened, I don't know, but I did see that it fell apart, at least for a short time. So Black Lives Matters is Black Lives Matters. You don't get to put whatever you want in front of it and say it matters and have it have the same strength as the original movement. I feel like that is diluting the message. If we say Black Lives Matters, it means all Black Lives Matter. How we manage that, whether it's internally within the communities of color, it is still Black Lives Matter. So to put all in front of it, for me, diluted the message. It also brought the attention to all, which is too similar to all lives matter. And it's a disruption in the message and the meaning and the purpose. We have to get vigilant about the idea of what it means to <clears throat> matter people's lives, humans' lives, Black people's lives. And we're talking about lives. People are getting hung up on the movement, and I don't like Black Lives Matters, well then you're saying you don't like me. That's problematic. And those are the difficult conversations we need to have with a sense of honesty and authenticity that starts to call out the stuff the way it is. All the thing well, you know, I found that when I say Black Lives Matter, in some circles, you know, it's like, well, Blue Lives Matter and so on and so on. That's not what I'm saying. It's almost like I have to say Black Lives Matter too, you know, and it's like, it shouldn't, it should already be understood, but people get so hung up on their own agendas, right. they feel like, okay, well, why are you saying that black lives are more important than any other life? I didn't right. say that. I'm saying, can we get some skin in the game? That's exactly. what I'm saying. Exactly. And furthermore, nobody is blue, by the way. There are no blue lives. Right. So that is just another distraction. Well, that, I have. I, I have agree. Say, I would argue that under, Melissa, you're when not I have, blue. You're I not say, blue. When I when I have under eye circles, <laughs> I am tinted. Part of my face is tinted blue. So I beg to differ. <laughs> Respect it. <laughs> Thank you. But what I think is interesting is you know the LGBTQ community, regardless of skin color, has been marginalized forever as well. Um. So I, I find sort of this the representation of, in the larger sense, Black Lives Matter, for me anyway, is truly an opportunity to deal with 
all marginalized groups and it's sort of taken on a bigger meaning. Am I completely the, crazy thinking that? But here's the thing, communities of color, and I'll speak for myself, African-Americans, I feel marginalized within the larger LGBTQ plus community. So, you know, um, the fact that I don't feel fully represented in a community that I'm a part of is a part of the problem. Until the gay community admits that racism exists within the context of the community, we don't begin to deconstruct and take a different route of what really truly means that we all matter. You know, I've been screaming on my social media about trans women of color getting killed for I don't know how long. It wasn't until this March that I saw it become up as, come up as an issue. And that's a problem for me because they are a part of black lives and they are being killed at a higher rate than in other people. And that's the conversation we have to stick with without getting distracted. Howard, how do you change the messaging? How this is all, all happening and happening so quickly, and especially with celebrities who continuously step in it. I mean, people really do try and say the right thing, but right now, nobody can say anything publicly that isn't going to get attacked by, by one group or another. And yet... We're all being told, don't say anything. Silence equals, you know, death. Yet everyone's sort of spinning in circles and not knowing what to do. And again, this is something that's been an ongoing topic with us. And it's part of our Can We Talk, Can We Listen series. What should we you be saying have... and what should we be hearing? Well, before you speak, you have to be educated. And that's the most important thing. And that's the... That's the part where most people have their failings, okay? Uh, you can't just mimic something you hear. You have to listen. You have to read what's going on. And you have to make it authentic for you, for for who you are. I, I, I At the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, if I heard one more white, and I'm a Jewish male, if I heard one more white Jewish entertainment executive talking about why his company was so involved in Black Lives Matter, I wanted to fucking puke. It really, I found it really fucking disgusting. Okay, I would have rather heard an African-American person in the mailroom speak as, as to it because I don't need to hear uh, a multimillionaire white executive uh, Jewish person or Christian person or whoever speak to this thing. The medium is the message and the optics sucked. And I don't know why they didn't understand the most basic part of that. You have to do a message that's important for you. And to get on video and sit here and rant, I just didn't get it. You have to decide who you are or who your company is, decide what your place in the movement is, and do something meaningful. And this has been interesting because most of my, most of my business is crisis and controversy. And individuals who've stepped in a warm, steamy pile and companies are now coming to me and they're saying, how do we move forward? What is, what is our moment here? And most of them get in trouble because they get out of their lane. They, they don't want to talk about what it is they do. They thought that they should comment on something that somebody else did or this movement, and they shouldn't. They should really talk about their industry. And I have one company that's in the cosmetics field, and 
they said, well, it's really hard to get black vendors in our company because they don't understand our thing. Then I said, then your job is to take young African-American women and to educate them and mentor them and to bring them up and to take companies and to bring them up. If you have to fund them, if you have to teach them how to do it, if you have to teach them the basics, if you have to run Zoom classes for them, that's what you have to do. That is your lane. That is what you understand. And people have to understand what their lane. And I, I think the most important word in my business, in the PR business, is authenticity. You have to do what's right for you and your company and stay the hell away from stuff that's not right for you. And that's how you do it. And what's right for me, what's right for any one person isn't right for every company. There is not a cookie cutter thing um, that everybody should be doing. And that's what you have to realize. You have to dig deeper. It's not easy. Um, it, it's not quick. And I know for a long time, a lot of companies, and I think that job went away and I hope it comes back. And I think it is, had a, had a person who's, key job was diversity and I think we yeah but a lot of them they had them and, and it was tokenism I agree I think, I, I think it still is I too and I, agree I think we have to say this is meaningful and this is important and this is not tokenism this is the future this is the future and this is how we build that future and I'll tell you you know we, I'm, I'm used to thinking change was slow but when when I look at uh, the Me Too movement, and I look at the Black Lives Matter movement, I'm seeing change at the speed of light because after the Me Too movement, I saw so many females move up in organization. And I, I'm praying and, and I'm seeing change in the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm hoping that I see black people move up in organizations. And I am seeing change, but we can't just move up people because of the color of their skin. We have to make sure that they're ready. We have to make sure they're prepared and we have to make sure they're surrounded by people who are gonna give them every chance for success too. I mean, Sean, you, you, like you said, you're really a public defender at heart. So you have really had a front row seat of dealing with crime with, and, and with obviously with, mar with marginalized communities. Or do you think you're going to start to see a change? You know, <laughs> I know it, that's a huge question. Well, it, it is, but you know, here, here's the thing. I, I started in the public defender's office in, in the late eighties. This is before cell phone cameras. And, um, whenever we would have a client when, who we saw in custody, who was clearly beaten up and bloodied, we'd know that that person had been beaten up by the police and that the charge was going to be battery on a police officer, not because the person actually battered a police officer, but because that would be the justification they put on the person whom they had beaten up. So when Rodney King happened, which of course was not with the cell phone camera, with an actual like video camera, yeah. we rejoiced, not of course that Rodney King had been beaten, but that finally here was video proof of what we knew to be so. And we thought this is a critical moment in history. Everything is going to change. And then, of course, the officers were prosecuted yep. and acquitted. And so it's hard for me, <laughs> excuse me, to believe that there is going to be real change. And I think that most Americans, especially minorities, and I'm not speaking for everyone, but I think that that's the feeling 
that if there have been so many cases where these officers have been protected, dismissed, and they're just, they go on with their lies as if, you know, some, you know, injustice behavior never happened. And I yeah. think people are so tired of that. And I think that that's what's brought us here today. Um, just want to change gears a tiny bit about something else that has been in the news. Um, <clears throat> there has been a lot of rumors swir- swirling about uh, about a, a senator who is, there's a movement to literally out this person. I'm, I'm curious, because Howard and I, you and I had a discussion about it and about outing, and that, in your opinion, the gay community does not particularly like outing someone unless there is such a level of hypocrisy. Do you still think that? Oh, I believe it 100%. And I'm one of the very few people who've ever outed someone. When I, um, oh my God, it was probably 15 or 20 years ago, I represented The Advocate, which is the leading gay news magazine. And they did a story called The Outing of Pete Williams. And Pete Williams, who's now an NBC reporter at the time, uh, was an assistant secretary of defense under Dick Cheney, who was the secretary of defense. And I represented a young man who was kicked out of the U.S. Naval Academy because he was gay. Um, I was written about in Randy Schultz's book, Conduct Unbecoming. I knew a lot about the subject. And I knew the kids who had no other way to leave their hometown went to join the military. And these kids were kicked out and they were humiliated. And they had to go home. And some of them actually committed suicide. There were some very, very tragic outcomes for these kids. And Pete Williams at the time, uh, I've never met the man, uh, but Pete Williams at the time was living an essentially an openly gay life in Washington, D.C. and going to bars and having boyfriends. And, um, and it was pretty revolting to me that he could, on, on the one hand, uh, being somebody who was a spokesman for this policy. And on the other hand, he thought it was okay to live this life. And they said to me, how do you feel about doing this? And I said, I feel just fine. The level of hypocrisy of the Department of Defense and, and this guy who is the spokesperson for this revolting, disgusting policy are just fine with me. So I had to make a personal moral decision and that's where I came out. It's the only person I have ever outed. I don't believe in outing an actor because they're gay. Uh, or I don't believe in outing anyone else. Um, I didn't like that when it happened 20 years ago. Um, and uh, I'm not afraid to mention the name. You can edit it out. But the Washington Post talked about it. And they talked about Senator Lindsey Graham. And they talked about it because a sex worker on Twitter uh, talked about the fact that he was going to out Lindsey Graham because he and so many other sex workers had been with this senator, and he thought it was revolting that this man was working against our community. And if that's indeed the case, then I think he should be outed. Um, we just had the case of a congressman uh, in Peoria, Illinois, uh, who was um, a Republican senator, working against our interests, who's now out everywhere at every gay party and on every gay app picking up dudes. And it's just, 
it's just disgusting. It's just really disgusting that people think they can live both lives. If you, if you choose to be in the closet, shut up and don't work against our interests, okay? Uh, if you have to work against our interests, then uh, don't, don't be publicly against our interests. And that's the only criteria I will accept. And in fact, Randy Schultz, who when he was alive was a very dear friend, was opposed to outing in any form. I'm not. And that's the hypocrisy is the, is the one moment that I can justify it personally. Other people may have different opinions. Yeah. JD, what do you think? Because I would think part of it also within the community is also fear. That I would think, you know, as, you know, especially as a, as a social worker, you would be also seeing a lot of fear. But do you agree with the idea that the hypocrisy at one point becomes too much? I believe the hypocrisy is problematic. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as a clinician, I am bound by confidentiality. Um, the idea of outing anyone has never even crossed my mind. But does the, um, does the duality work against the, the mission and the purpose? Absolutely. It's, it's extremely problematic. Um, there's lots of ways in which it, it's problematic that people play both sides of the fence, though. I mean, it's pretty universal that it's a problem, and it, and it, inhibits, the pro- it inhibits progress. Uh, Sean, and this, this is something when I was thinking about all this, I wanted specifically to ask you, is there legal recourse on if someone is outed? Is there, is it, does, or does it fall under libel? I mean, how does, how does that process even work? Because you always hear, oh, I'm going to sue them and, you know, libel and blah, 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 blah. Right. You know, we've all, we all, we've all read the statements. We've all heard the, you know, news clips and voice crap and everything we all see on the news every day. Yeah. So that all, libel and slander, all fall under the umbrella of defamation. And it all kind of turns on whether or not you're a public figure. If you are a public figure, like the people that we're talking about now, then you have put yourself out in the public sphere and you're not entitled to the same protections as someone who lives a private life. So the only way you could sue for defamation is if you were able to prove that whatever was said about you was said with malice, which is a difficult- um, And it was burden. false. Well, it was false. Course, that it was false and that it was said with malice. Um, truth is always a defense. Um, so the people that we're talking about would have a very hard time, I would think, uh, bringing a defamation lawsuit. And, and haven't there been court decisions that have said that being gay is not a defamatory well, description yeah, anymore, I mean, too? It, it, and, I, and, I, and I was going to say that not as it relates to the law, but just generally. I mean... It, from, a, from a PR standpoint, and I defer to you on this, but from a PR standpoint, it would be very tricky, I would think, to take a position that has at, at, its, at its core some point of view that you think this is a bad thing. Yeah, look, look, at, how far, look at how far Mayor Pete got in the presidential campaign. Well, that, that's actually what I was going to say. I, I, Mayor Pete, I, J.D., do you see him as a trailblazer? Are we going to look back and say it was maybe the first time, especially in politics, that so many people looked beyond someone's sexuality? I'm going to say two things that probably aren't very popular. 
That's okay. Just say them. No, say them. Please say, say it's them. Just, it's just us. We won't tell but, anybody. But they're, honest, <laughs> but they're honest, and it's my opinion. I think um, Mayor Pete is still a white man. And I think that um, his parts of himself that present publicly, that is what's received first. I think that his sexuality may have um, helped him in certain realms, but I think his stance was primarily what, what moved him forward. So you, you think it was his popularity that it didn't transcend, it didn't transcend in any way? Think, you think he was still viewed first and foremost as a white man? Yeah, I think, you know, we still have to look at who runs the world and who runs things and who makes things happen in terms of power. We are all fighting to get there. But the reality of it is, is that it is the white male who dominates what it is that happens, which is why we have to start breaking down communication with them to help them understand why racism doesn't benefit them, help them understand why white supremacy is not a good look and it's tearing us down. We have to get into that realm of thinking to really make sense. And it has to real. they have to realize they're not making money, which doesn't make sense. When you say white supremacy, are you speaking of white supremacy as most of us think about it, like the protesters in Charlotte and these no. very angry, frightening groups? Or are you speaking about white men white or privilege. white people in general? White, white gen- privilege. White privilege. I now, say it again, Sabrina. I said white privilege. I've now elevated racism to white supremacy. We need to call it what it is. The, as, as, um, as intrusive as it is in society, we've surpassed your everyday racism. This has now become a position of aggression and power, and that's what white supremacists stand for. They stand for dominance and taking over, and that's what's happening in our country. Well, you know what's going to happen? Be- because you're starting to put that into the culture, people are going to be more upset because they're going to be so uncomfortable with that label. Well, so you bring up an excellent point for me, which is, um, you know, most people, most white people I know and love and who are in my life and colleagues, they understand this thought process, but it has to be, they have to unlearn something to learn it. Mm-hmm. And so the situation is this, if I don't say racist things, if I'm not racist actively, if I'm not believing you are less than in my, my way of thinking, then I'm not a racist. And the fact of the matter is that the dominant white culture owns racism. You can't give it away, you can't sell it, you can't unearn it. And the reason why is because the system has been set up for that, for that reason. So racism is systemic. And how we know the dominant culture owns racism is that they have the white privilege to show it and the privilege to move through the world. That doesn't mean you can't unlearn habits that you were taught when you were younger. That doesn't mean you can't change your, the way you think and move through the world, but you still own the privilege, you still own the power, you still own the word. I, now, we, now, I, I have a question for you. I'm sorry, I just can't help myself, Melissa. No, I'll um, go after you. It's okay. Um, so, and some of the things that you've said, have you ever been labeled militant? I've been labeled everything, militant, an angry black woman, you, I mean, you name it. I, I got a list of things I've been labeled. And as I'm getting older, I just add more labels. I have no problem with it. I'll share mine if you share yours. <laughs> There's been a lot. I, I, that sets me up for so many things I would love to say about Sabrina. <laughs> I just, I'm going to just, just trust me. Howard, help. You're my, my you're my baby. My, my <laughs> mother, <laughs> for people who don't She's know. She's my sister. Leave her alone. Oh, please. My mother, it used to whore Sabrina out. 
to get out of speeding tickets, to get help anywhere because Sabrina is extremely beautiful. And when she wants to turn it on and work it, you have never, it's it's like she, she, she's varsity, not JV. Okay, wow. let's just put it that way. It's okay. true. Wait, was I just, Mo, uh, Melissa, were we just called white supremacists? Well, that was what I was going to go back to. <laughs> Um, but for the I, did not call you, I did not call you white supremacist. Right, I did but that—that's what. No, but I just say as a Jew who lost the majority of my family on my father's side to the Holocaust, it's very hard to hear the label white supremacist. I am not. Do calling you want to know? Any of I you. mean, I want to talk about my truth a second. And my truth is, we had an African American woman, Josephine, who helped raise me, and who was a second mother to me. My aunt, um, my father's sister, um, had a child out of wedlock with a black man in 1960. And black people have always been wonderful, loving, and nurturing to me. The most frightening people to me in the world are white trash people. I think they call them Trump voters. And oh my God. they were... Um, I'm glad that's coming out of your mouth. Yeah, I was going to say, I admit, I now drink White Claw because I can make a mean White Claw smoothie. So easy there with, you know, the white trash label because some of us have, have, in the quarantine, have discovered perhaps roots they didn't know they had. And I grew up in Flint, Michigan with a very integrated population. But I've just had a different experience than a lot of than a lot of white people did with the black community. And I have nothing but affection and and that community said never been treated me anything but with love and and kindness. And, you know, it's just a very different thing. And it has to do with very specific circumstances that I was raised under that I have a, you know, black first cousin and, you know, that, I had a second mother that was black and that, you know, that changed a lot of my thinking. Most people didn't have that. And And so I I recognize that. So I'm not saying you're white supremacist. Please let me, let me say that and clarify that. Thank you. Also, I'm not saying that. By the way, I was kidding, by the way. I just wanted to jump in and say in our household growing up, I had a lot of uncles and not so many aunts. (laughs) <laughs> so I was really raised in a very strange environment yeah. <laughs> well before it was chic to do so. Yeah. What, can I just clarify, please? Because yes, I don't please. want anybody to think the same I was kidding, white people, I know white exactly supremacists. the point no, you were go, making. Okay? I know, but go ahead, go ahead exactly. and... But for our listeners, go ahead and clarify. Let me clarify. I'm saying what's happening in the country is white supremacy. I'm saying the, law, the laws that persist, the practices that happen, are at the level of white supremacy. Of course I'm saying they are. that institutionalized systemic racism is now being elevated. I'm not calling anyone in particular white supremacist. Can I give you a list <laughs> of people? <laughs> not touching that one. <laughs> Touche. Touche. You know what? I, one last question. I just want to go around the, the panel. It's such a big question. And I always think about this because I do have a 19-year-old son who is we're leaving a world to our children that is on fire and that their lives will forever be changed. What, if you could pick one thing, what do you hope for, for the Gen Z, how, 
how this affects them and how they can actually, because it's in their hands, move our country forward and these conversations forward. Sean? Well, you know, we've heard a lot about over the years, the browning of America. And Howard, you were just kind of talking about that in a way in your own life, growing up around black people. Um, and, you know, the more interracial children and relationships, um, I suppose that that is a positive outcome um, in that in that sense. I, you know, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is I hope for greater tolerance, however that however that shows up, be it mixing of races, which you know, from my standpoint, is really not that important, but it does seem to have an effect, or if it's just you know, opening your mind, surrounding yourself with other people, and being aware of your own prejudices and biases and working to over overcome it. Howard? I want the black community and the gay community to get closer together. There's been a chasm there, mostly caused by churches. And I think we need to work really hard because we're only going to advance together. And a victory for one is a victory for both. And we have to work together and as was was so succinctly pointed out, the gay community is not just gay white men and 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 white lesbians. It is all of us and people of color, and we have to understand that, and we have to recognize the diversity within the LGBTQIA community, and we have to move forward together. And the black community has to do work in accepting the gay community too. There's work to be done on both sides. JD? What I'm gonna say um, is that the African-American community has its own unlearning to do. And it's bigger than the gay community. It's bigger than gay acceptance. It's unlearning the internalized oppression that makes us believe we have to turn on ourselves and each other. So for me, it's not about uh, the gay community. It's more about us learning to love ourselves and appreciate ourselves and grow to support ourselves in a society that's taught us to do exactly the opposite. So my hope is to, to uh, develop a, an, an understanding, appreciation, and love for ourselves because it begins with us. And then the second thing is that our educational systems actually teach the truth because that's where it begins. It begins with learning history as it actually happened so people can take ownership and we can create systems that are equitable. And that's the only way real change is going to happen. Sabrina, any final thoughts? Mm, I'm taking back on what JD was saying. I'm, I'm really, and Howard, I'm really hoping that, you know, equality, maybe I'll see it in my lifetime. I still think we have a long ways to go across the board, be it black, white, gay, being a woman. We have a little ways to go. Economically, we have a ways to go. And I guess my final thought, because it's such a compelling conversation and such a huge topic, is I think what I personally hope for is that I have taught my son well and and carried on and taken even to another level the way I was raised with acceptance, you know, and Sabrina would testify, my mom and my dad always used to say when they would be assessing someone, smart is smart. It doesn't yeah. matter. And more importantly, funny is funny. It doesn't matter who it's coming from. So I, I hope that I'm raising my son with that sort of, that same filter, that it's about who the person is, not what they are. 
Anyway, this has been a fantastic conversation. I thank you all so much for joining. And uh, I'm going to make you all commit right here on air to coming back another time. Does everyone say yes? I'm in. All right. Love it. Love it. Love it. You guys are fantastic. This has been Group Text. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Bye.